You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Um, okay, so we've been looking at the we've been looking at the book of Judges this semester in RUF, and we have seen that it's a pretty disgusting and grotesque and bizarre book. And tonight we get to, in some ways, the the worst part of the whole book. We get to, uh, in some, I, I think this is uh, this is the this is the most disturbing story in the Bible. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to go through the book of Judges was I don't want to I don't want to shy away from the ugly parts of the Bible. You know, there's the good and the bad and the ugly. And if we're going to if we're going to take the truth claims of Christianity seriously, we've got to look at all of it and not just pick and choose the parts we like. So I'm not really excited to talk about this passage. It's it's a pretty um, sobering story, but uh, we're going to look at it. And we've been seeing in the book of Judges that the, that the point of the book of Judges, it's a collection of true stories, true stories that are written with the intention of showing you that you have a great need for a Savior and a great Savior for your need. But before we get into this disgusting story, um, here's how I wanted to set it up. Uh, I just recently read a book called um, And One More Thing by B.J. Novak. If you're unfamiliar, you might know B.J. Novak uh, was Ryan or Temp, the Temp on The Office, the show on Netflix, The Office. And um, it's a collection of short stories that he wrote, and they're hilarious. They're amazing. The first story of the collection is called The Rematch. And it's his, his story of what happens after the story of the tortoise and the hare. So you remember the story of the tortoise and the hare? The, the hare gets overly confident that he's going to crush the tortoise in this foot race. So he takes a nap, and the tortoise, because, he's slow, because slow and steady wins the race... He wins the race. And so what happens after the story, according to B.J. Novak, is that the hare gets depressed, gains all this weight, gets religious, and realizes that the only way to get over the shame of losing to a tortoise is he's got he's to re, rematch him somehow. And so he's talking about he wants to rematch the tortoise, and so all the media gets involved, and they're putting the microphone in the tortoise's face, like, are you going to rematch? Are you going to rematch? And the tortoise at first is reluctant, but here's what he starts thinking. This is a quote from the book. The tortoise thinks... I'm undefeated against the hare. Actually, I'm 1-0. I'm undefeated in my entire racing career. How do you win a race? Slow and steady. That's what they say, right? Well, I invented slow and steady. This is good. This will be good. One, one time could have been a fluke. Twice there will be no question. So he agrees, let's do it. And they set a date for the rematch. And the hare starts training like crazy. He's drinking protein shakes and doing Whole30. And he's racing. He's running multiple times a day, and uh, he's watching old tapes of his old races. He's got taped up on the wall all of the vicious things people have said about him over the years. And here's the starting line. And the gun's about to go off, and the gun goes off, and here's what he says. Within seconds, the hare was in the lead by hundreds of yards. Within minutes, the hare had taken the lead by more than a mile. The tortoise crawled on, slow and steady, but as he became anxious at having lost sight of his competitor... And panicked over what it seemed of what he seemed to have done to his legacy, he started speeding up, less slow, less steady, but it hardly mattered. Before long, less than 20 minutes after the seven-mile race had begun, word had worked its way back to the beginning of the race that the hare had not only won the contest, 
wait for it, had not only recorded a time that was his personal best, but had also set world records not only for all hares, but also for all mammals under 20 pounds. (laughs) When news reached the tortoise, still essentially under the banner of the starting line, he fainted. And someone else from the crowd goes, oh, now he's napping. Isn't that rich? Heckled a nearby goat, drunk on radish wine. (laughs) And for those who were there for both contests, knew what was so special about what they had witnessed, slow and steady wins the race until truth and talent claim their place. It's intense. But here's what he's saying. He's doing this analysis on our culture. He's saying we, we, we tell these stories And we have these messages, and here's a message that says, slow and steady wins the race. And he says, we all just download this and think this is true, but when you think about it, it's ridiculous and it's stupid. Slow and steady doesn't win the race. Truth and talent always dominate slow and steady. Now, you're free to disagree with him, but here's my point, is that he does a cultural analysis on the stories and the messages that we hear, and I think Judges 19, what we're about to read, does the same thing. It does a cultural analysis and says, there are these stories that we tell ourselves, in fact, There's a message that our culture is telling you over and over and over and over and over and over, and you have downloaded it and you believe it. And Judges 19 is going to show you not only is it completely stupid, it's extremely dangerous. This message that we've all downloaded and that we all believe and we've all bought into is the source of all evil. And it is the root of all the pain and suffering that there is in the world. What is this message I'm talking about? Here's the message that you and I hear over and over and over, and the message is this. You should do whatever you want to do. You, if it feels good, do it. In fact, this is is the underbelly of the American dream. This is the unspoken part of the American dream. You should have the freedom to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whomever you want to do it with. And because we're not barbarians, we throw in this little clause at the end that says, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And that's kind of how, this is the message that we all believe. We, we say, you don't have a right to tell me how to live my life. It's my life. What's right for me may not be right for you. So you do you, let me do me. And that's kind of the, that's, that is the message that we hear over and over and over and over. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We're, bo- we're bombarded by this. Here, here's, here's some advertisements that, that send this message to you. Um, here's an advertisement from Levi Original. The advertising slogan is, Do your own thing. Do your own thing. You do you. Here's Nissan. Choose your own path. Outback Steakhouse. No rules, just right. No rules. Who needs rules? It's just right without rules. JCPenney, which I would not think is like a cutting-edge cool company anymore. It's like, (laughs) this is an old-school company. Here's what they say. Be a rebel. Make your own rules. These These are just some of the advertisements. Did I say that right? There you go. All right. These are some advertisements. Here are some songs that you hear constantly. Maybe you don't hear these constantly, but Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Y'all got this on your, on your Spotify playlist. Frank Sinatra has this song called uh, My Way, which is, a, which is one of the most common songs that is played at funerals in the UK. And here's one of the lyrics. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. My way. We celebrate this. I did life on my terms. Nobody told me how to live it. I did it my way. We're like, yes. Elsa from Frozen. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. 
Uh, Miley Cyrus? <laughs> this is our party. We can do it. <laughs> this, this is our party. We can do what we want. Do whatever we want. No wrong, no right, no rules. My way. These are the songs that we listen to. What about TV shows? I don't know if anybody watches Lost anymore. Maybe three of y'all. One of y'all. Um, John Locke on Lost. You know what his famous quote is that he says all the time? Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what I can't do. Do whatever I want. Uh, Walter White, Breaking Bad. There's this amazing scene where he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's dying of cancer and he's in the doctor's office. And he's getting ready to get treatment with this... Um, there's this other patient sitting next to him, and they have this dialogue. And the other guy says, you know, for me, this has been the biggest wake-up call. You know, letting go, giving up control. And Walter goes, that is such bull-ish. <laughs> and the guy goes, excuse me? And Walter White goes, never give up control. Live life on your own terms. And the other guy goes, yeah, I know what you're saying, but, I mean, cancer is cancer. And Walter White goes, to hell with your cancer. I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. Right from the start, it's a death sentence. That's what they keep telling me. Well, guess what? Every life comes with a death sentence. Until then, who's in charge? Me. That's how I live my life. Did you know this is the message that you are being preached to over and over and over and over and over? You're in charge. Don't tell me what I can't do. I'll do it my way. No rules, just right. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. This is the gospel that our culture is just repeating over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And this passage is going to tell you not only is it a false gospel that we're all buying into, it is the source behind all that is evil and wrong in the world. It is the source behind all the pain, all the carnage that you look out and you see in the world. All the suffering is because of this. So I'm going to read the story to you. I'm just going to kind of read it, and I'll walk through it, and I'll kind of make some points as I go. And again, I'm just going to give you a warning on the front end. This is, uh, this is at least a rated R rating. Maybe TV mature. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's intense. So you've been warned. Um, verse 1, 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, hit pause. Levites were religious professionals. They worked in the temple. And it says that he took to himself a concubine, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, but in case you're unfamiliar, I'll explain. Uh, A concubine was basically a second-class wife. It's like his mistress. He's He's a married man, but he's unhappy in his marriage. And so, as some people would say, he... He has uh, you know, a little side piece. And so he has, he has he essentially hooked up with his, his secretary. And so this is, his, this is what his concubine is. It's his mistress. We'll keep going. Verse 2. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. So she cheats on him. He finds out about it. She pieces out and she goes down to Bethlehem. He is in the north up in this place called Ephraim, and she goes all the way down to this place called Bethlehem, and that's where she's chilling for about four months. Verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So the guy goes down to get his girl back, and they stay in Bethlehem for a few days. He eventually convinces her to move back in with him. She agrees, and so they pack up all their stuff, and they start heading from the south all the way back up to the north to Ephraim. Skip ahead, verse 14. 
So they passed on and they went went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Okay, so they roll into this Israelite town called Gibeah, and it's at night, and there were no hotels or hostels back then. So what was traditional Middle Eastern custom and hospitality was that you would go to the town square and you would wait for somebody from the town to come out and see you and bring you into their home. So they're sitting out there and they're waiting. Verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah, and the men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me, and your female servant and young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. And so he brought him into his house, and he gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Okay, so here's what just happened. They're in the town square. An old man is passing through, sees the crew sitting in the town square. They start chit-chatting. They both realize they're from the same hometown. And the old dude is like, okay, whatever you do, don't stay in the town square. This is, this is a rough part of the city, believe it or not. So come with me and crash on my couch. Well, I'll put you up for the night. So he does. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And yes, that means what you think it means. There's this mob of aggressive, sexually charged guys that are like zombies. They're surrounding their house. They're banging on it. They're clawing at it. And they're saying, that Levi that just went into your house, bring him out so that we can all gang rape him. And uh, this is terrifying. There's no escape. There's nowhere for these people to run. And so verse 23, And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. I mean, I don't even have categories for this. This is like unthinkable. They, they essentially, I mean, this guy says, take my daughter and violate her. I mean, this is insane. Vi- take this guy's concubine, violate him, her. And it, and it shows you that, that the old man and the, and the Levite both have, both think that these women are their property. They're expendable. You can do whatever you want with them. Just don't mess with us. Which is, this, which is the most anti-biblical notion that they could have had in their heads. I mean, the Bible says in Genesis 1, both male and female were made in God's image, both endowed with dignity, value, honor, worth. They didn't believe it. They thought women were beneath us, so you can do whatever you want with them. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him, and so the man seized his concubine. This is the Levite. He seized his concubine, and he made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. So the Levite, you know, he grabs his concubine, he throws her outside, and he closes the door. And him and the buddy, him and the old guy, you know, they crack a beer and watch Jimmy Fallon and go to sleep while they're abusing and assaulting her 
throughout the night. Verse 26. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold, and he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. He just He's so callous, he's so inhumane. Get up, we're going, let's go. And there's no answer. And the reason why there's no answer is because she's dead. Next verse. And then he put her, meaning her, her corpse, on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. So he takes her corpse and he chops it up into 12 different pieces because he's so outraged. He's like, this is so, this is so messed up. Everybody needs to know about this. And so he chops it chops her up and he takes each piece and he wraps it and he FedExes it to all the different 12 tribes of Israel so that they would know and respond, this is what's going on in our own country, as it were. And look at their reaction, verse 30. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or had been seen in the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So when all the different tribes get these body parts in the mail, they all rise up and they all go to this town called Gibeon. So you've got all the 12 tribes and they're all kind of descending on this town. And what happens in the rest of the book of Judges, there's two more chapters in the book of Judges. There's this civil war that breaks out because of this incident. And you have Israel collapsing in on itself, fighting each other, Israelites murdering each other. Thousands of Israelites die and the book ends. That's how, the book, that's how Judges ends. There's no resolution. There's no happily ever after. It just ends with this crescendo of violence and anarchy and chaos. And then the author adds one little verse at the end that I included, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you see how the, book, do you see how the story ends and how it was bookended? Look at, look at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And then look at the last verse. In those days there was no king in Israel. This is before King David. This is before King Solomon. There's no king, meaning there is no moral authority. And the point that the author of Judges is making, if there is no king, if there is no moral authority, then everybody simply just does whatever is right in their own eyes. Everyone does whatever is best for them. Everybody believes and thinks, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do with whoever I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. I've got to look out for what is best for me. And the passage is trying to show you that outlook is the source of all that is evil. I mean, this passage is supposed to be sickening. It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to mess you up because it's showing you this is what it looks like if you embrace a lifestyle of I'll just do whatever I want. I'll just do whatever I want. I'll do whatever seems right in my own eyes. Did you notice the language of verse 21? Look at verse 21 real quick. When the old man offers his daughter and the concubine to the mob, he says to them, do to them whatever seems good to you. That language is intentional. Just do whatever seems right in your own eyes. What is is the thing that's behind sexual assault? You know the thing that's behind sexual assault? It's... it's, it's People believe it's people believe in they, they have the right to do whatever they want to do. The reason why there's a you know hashtag Me Too movement is because you have men in power who said, I want to do whatever is right in my own eyes. I, I want to do whatever I want to do. It's 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 men in power 
actually practicing the gospel that our culture is telling them to believe. You should do whatever you want to do. Okay? If you believe you should do whatever you want to do, then that slowly starts to make you believe that everybody exists, exists to serve the purpose of whatever is best for me. Everybody exists to serve me now. If, if, the way, if my entire outlook is I'm free to do whatever I want to do, I need to look out for what's best for me, no right, no wrong, I do whatever is right in my own eyes, then everybody now exists to serve the purpose of serving my own happiness. Everyone exists to make me happy. This is the, this is the, um, uh, this is the fundamental root behind um, uh, misogyny. I mean, think about it. Why is it that women typically uh, get paid less than men, even for the same jobs? Why is it that women uh, most often don't even have the same equal opportunities as men? Here's how one of my friends explained it. He says, on, here's why, because on average, uh, guys can bench press more than girls, and so they rose to power and they gained the upper hand and they created institutions where they sustained and were able to maintain the upper hand. And when men have the upper hand and they believe they can do whatever they want to do, then they do whatever they want to do with women. Whatever's right in their own eyes. It's the same, uh, it's the same logic behind racism. Racism is, uh, there's, a, there's a group of people that's beneath me and they exist to serve me. And white people bought it and we believed it and we justified kidnapping people and enslaving people and torturing people and raping people and murdering people in the name of we're just doing whatever's right in our own eyes. You exist to serve me. This makes sense to me. I have power, I can do whatever I want. Uh, we, my wife and I were out of town this weekend. We were driving up. We were listening to these pri- uh, crime podcasts about, um, this is really disturbing, uh, but we were listening to these stories of uh, men that, have be- have, that were family annihilators, men that just kind of killed their wife and all their uh, children. You think about, okay, why does that exist? Why is there child abuse? It's because in somebody's mind it is, you're not making me happy, and so I have the right to do whatever I want to do. Here's my point. You start looking at all these... When you look out of the world and you see these big, horrifying things and the carnage and the racism and the sexism and the poverty and the pain and the suffering, you know what's behind it all? It's, what's behind it all is people thinking, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It's people believing the gospel that the culture is just telling you to believe over and over and over and over and over. Whatever is right in my own eyes, I can do whatever I want. Now let's take a, let's take a commercial break. To lighten the mood. Maybe you've seen the TV show The Office. Uh, but there's an episode where Michael Scott, is, who's the office manager, is having an affair with a married woman. And um, everybody in the office says, this is wrong. You should stop. And he's denying it. He's justifying it. And he just says, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to embrace a lifestyle where I just do whatever I want to do and I don't care what anybody thinks. So... In the, in the main office, he says, quote, I am what I am, and I want what I want, and right now, I want a piece of cake. From now on, whenever I'm hungry, I'm going to eat whatever I'm hungry for. And Kevin, you know, the big guy, goes, that's a dangerous game, friendo. <laughs> and so Michael walks into the break room, and Ryan and Kelly are sitting at the table, and he opens up the fridge, and he pulls out this birthday cake, and he sets it down, and he opens up, and he just goes in with his hand, and he's just eating it with his hand. And Kelly goes, that's Meredith's cake. It's her birthday. And Michael goes, I don't care. I have an appetite for life. And he's just eating it, taking it to the face. And um, Ryan sees the way that he's living, and Ryan starts to get inspired. And he's like, 
good for you, man. Good for you. And then it cuts over to this monologue, and Ryan's sitting there looking at the camera, and he goes, he just takes what he wants. So then it cuts over, and Ryan's like walking through the office, and he goes to the receptionist, Aaron. And here's what he says to Aaron. He says, you know what? I think you're attractive, and I want to sleep with you. And she goes, is this a joke? And he kind of gets freaked out, and he's like, yep. And so walks away and goes back into the break room. And here's where he tells, here's where he tells Michael, it's hard to live that way, my man. You really got to not care what people think about you. I, I don't know how you do it. Michael, I can't be that cold. And so Ryan, who's one of the most despicable characters on the show, realizes if I just live a life of doing whatever I want, embracing, taking whatever I want, that is heartless. That is, even Ryan knows something's messed up about it. Here's the point. Here's the scary thing. Whenever you and I operate from that same outlook, I got to do what's best for me. I, I, I need to do whatever makes me happy. You need to know that that is the same instinct behind the biggest evils in the world. In some way, I have one point tonight. And here's my one point. When you operate out of that mindset of, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, you need to know you're playing for the same team as the people in the story that assaulted and murdered this woman. It's the same logic. It's the same, you just believe in the same thing. It's the same instinct. I'll just do whatever I want. Think about how the story began. It starts off so innocent. You've got a married Levite who isn't happy in his marriage. If he were to talk, he would probably say, you know, I think I've fallen out of love with her. She doesn't really get me. She doesn't really connect with me. And he meets this concubine. He meets this other girl. And he's like, yes, she energizes me. She gets me. I feel so much more alive with her. And this is the story that, you know, is played out to this day. You see people in unhappy marriages, and they think, I've fallen out of love with my spouse, and I need to do whatever makes me happy. So I'm going to do whatever it is I'm going to do to make me happy. If that means getting a mistress, if that means blowing things up, my happiness is what is most important. And here's what I want you to see. That is no different from the logic in the hearts of these men in this mob. They're both thinking the same thing. I'm just going to do whatever is right for me. I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. I'm going to, I'm going to have, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. They're both playing for the same team. One seems really innocuous. It seems really small. seems totally ordinary. This one's graphic. This is crazy. But it's the same. It's just different in degrees. Here's the point. When, if you don't confront that thing in you that says, I, I just want to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. You just need to know you're playing for the same team as the worst evils in the world. That The heart that says, I'm just going to cheat a little bit, I'm just going to lie a little bit, the heart that wants to grope somebody on the dance floor or to get a girl intentionally drunk or makes the offhanded racist joke or indulges in pornography or whatever, it's the same heart that is behind the worst evils in the world. It's the heart that says, I want to do whatever I want to do, because there's no rules that apply to me. There's no king. If there is no king over your life, then you will do whatever is right in your own eyes. In fact, that, that phrase, in, at the end, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That phrase shows up four or five times at the end of the book of Judges. It's such a big deal. We're going to look at it again next week. But here's what I want to at least point out as we finish is the reason why the book of Judges is so grotesque and why it's so horrifying and it's so sickening is because it's showing you a picture of what the world looks like 
when there is no king. It's showing you a shocking and sickening picture of what happens when everybody does whatever is right in their own eyes. And what it does, as you read the story and you get to the end of the book of Judges, and it's like there's no king. There's no king. Everybody's doing whatever they want, and that's why the world is insane. It makes you start to long for a king who can come and heal the mess that we live in. It makes you long for a king that can actually come and establish humanity in such a way where we don't destroy each other anymore. You're left with this longing for a king. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you're longing for this king. And you go through all these kings in the Old Testament, they all suck and none of them are the good king. And so you're just longing for this king. And by the time you get to the New Testament, isn't it fascinating that the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark, he starts talking about a kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, The kingdom that you've been waiting for and the king that you have been longing for is finally here. And how does Jesus go about establishing his kingdom? You know what he says? You know what he prayed? At the end of his life, he prayed, God, not my will, but your will be done. He didn't believe the false gospel of, I've got to do whatever is best for me. I've got to look out for number one. He said, this is not about me. It's not about my will. It's not about what I want. It's about what you want, God. And you know what that prayer got him? That prayer, not my will, but your will be done, it, it drove him straight to the cross. Why? Here's why. Well, think about that concubine with the mob outside of the door for a second. They're in the house. The zombies are kind of clawing and banging on the door. And the Levite grabs her against her own will, and he throws her out to the crowd to save his own skin. And she gets abused, and she gets violated while he sleeps safely in bed. She gets torn to pieces, and he is totally at peace. She dies so that he might live. There is a Savior in Judges 19, but she didn't ask to be the Savior. She didn't want to be the Savior. In fact, if you think about it, who in their right mind would ever want to save that guy, that callous, inhumane, despicable guy? Who in their right mind would ever willingly walk out that door and take the abuse and the violation and the torment and die for someone so despicable? Who in their right mind would do that? Jesus would, and Jesus has. Everything that threatens to kill you, everything that threatens to undo you, Jesus willingly walked out, and he was violated, and he was abused, and he was tortured, and he was murdered on a cross so that you might live. He was torn to pieces so that you might have peace. He dies so that you might live. The real gospel, not the false American gospel, but the real gospel is shocking. Because it tells you a story of a king that would come and stoop so low that he would give himself for despicable people. And here's why I think. So that that instinct inside of us, that destructive instinct inside of us that says, I just want to do whatever I want to do, so that that thing in us would would get destroyed by an experience of his grace. The only thing that will change you, the only thing that will turn you Inside out, as it were, to say, I'm going to stop living for me, and I'm going to start living for whatever God wants and whatever is best for my neighbor. The only way that will happen is if your heart has an experience with grace. When you see and you look out at the world and you realize, man, I am a contributor to all of the carnage, and he comes and he gives himself for me, only that will begin to undo you. Let me end with one more story, and then I'm finished. Uh, I just recently... um, Heard about the story about this guy named Ken Parker. 
He's a, a KKK guy, neo-Nazi, white supremacist. Uh, he did the whole shebang. He wore the robes. He had swastika tattoos. He was one of the guys that marched in um, Charlottesville a couple years ago. And uh, he looked up to Dylan Roof, who, as you know, was the guy that walked into that uh, black church and shot and murdered uh, nine black people while they were in a prayer service. He looked, he, that was his hero. And he, he, was, he, was being, uh, he was one of the talking heads of a documentary that was being made about white supremacy. And so this, this uh, documentary gets filmed and it gets published and he watches it. And when he sees himself on screen, he begins to see kind of how stupid he sounds and how foolish his views really are. And so it starts to kind of create some questions in him. And so he starts to start up a conversation with one of his black neighbors who is, interestingly enough, uh, a pastor at a local black church, very similar to the church that was attacked and terrorized by Dylan Roof. And he starts talking to this guy, and they kind of start to start up a little bit of a friendship. And then the white supremacist guy, Ken Parker, and his fiance start going to that church. And in fact, at one point, I don't, I don't know how this happened, but at some point, Ken Parker got on the microphone and explained his views to the congregation. He said, you need to know I'm a neo-Nazi, and you kind of hear my beliefs. He just kind of laid it all out there. Here's what I think about y'all. And he said, in an article after the fact, that the congregation embraced him. They moved toward him and they hugged him. And they said to him, you know, we, we find what you believe despicable. We don't, we don't agree with you. But it took a lot of courage to share what you just shared with us. And, we, you know, you're, you are safe and you are welcome here. And he said in an article, that was the moment where everything changed for him. When he looked at these people that he had hated, and he saw his people, these are people beneath me. And they responded to him and his hatred with grace. That grace began to melt and change something in his own heart. As the story goes, a year after the fact, a year after he was marching in Charlottesville, he walked hand in hand with his black pastor down into the uh, shore of the Atlantic Ocean. He was baptized as a new believer in Christ, as a member of that church. What I love about that story is it shows you here is this heart that is turned in on itself, that is believing everything that is wrong in the world and creating everything that is wrong in the world. And he had an experience with grace. And it transformed him. It is only when you have an experience with grace will you begin to say, I'm going to stop living for whatever I want and I'm going to start living for whatever God wants and whatever is best for my neighbor. No longer my will be done, but God, thy will be done. In fact, let me end with this. Here's, here's, here's what Paul says. He says it better than I could. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's talking about Jesus. He says, And Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died so that those who live, you and me, might not no longer live for ourselves, but rather we would live for him and for the good of our neighbor. I pray that you and I have an experience of grace that we would be able to say deep in our heart, it is no longer my will be done, but thy will be done. That's my prayer. That's an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to know how much you love us, how much you even love your enemies, that you would give yourself for people that are hardened, that are inhumane, that are selfish, that are narcissists, that contribute to the destruction and the damage of the world. And as we know that you love us and you embrace us, 
I pray that that would move us. I pray that it would break our hearts. I pray that it would change us in such a way that we would grow to hate what you hate and to love what you love. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.